This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. It's always a joy to gather with us, uh, each other, to open up God's Word. It's a privilege we get to enjoy, but it's a privilege we do not take for granted, because that's what God has given to us today. So before we start, could I invite you to pray with me, to ask God to help us to engage with His Word. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you today that we can open up your Word and look at this amazing passage in Matthew 21. Father, we pray that as we journey into this passage, as we experience what is happening on that Palm Sunday, Father, we pray that you help us also to engage with our hearts so that we may respond rightly in the midst of all the noises. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. It would be great to keep it open because we will look at it throughout this morning. Regicide. 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 The word means king killers. Well, we might not hear this word very often, but it's an earth-shattering word. The word regicide is a combination of two words. Regis in Latin means of king. And side, a cider means king, a killer or killing. So the word regicide means the killing of a king or the person who is responsible for killing the king. Now regicide is found in all of our history. In British history, the most famous being the historical trial and then the public execution of King Charles I of England. Back in 1649, the ruling parties cohoot and they decided that he should be put to death. Ever since then, many kings and royalties throughout history died in the hands of regicide, king killers. Well, regicide was claimed in US history. There was a provocative book called Regicide, the Official Assassination of JFK. In the book, the author Gregory Douglas, he argued that the U.S. President's assassination was actually instigated and agreed by high-powered authorities. Regicide is found in the history of Walt Disney. Now, there's that famous movie, Lion King, where there's a lion named Scar who murdered his brother, the rightful king, Mufasa, and attempted to kill the rightful heir, Simba, to usurp the throne. Regicide is found in literature, plenty. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, the manipulative politician Claudius plans and kills his brother King Hamlet to ascend to the throne. Regicide has been part of our human history, where people with power tries to kill a king to overturn sovereignty or to usurp the throne. It's been our history, but never... In our history, has this word reached a tsunami level than the very passage that we'll be reading in the next few weeks, where men become so obsessed with power that they will bring God to trial and kill the king from heaven. This morning, as we come to Matthew 21, with the arrival of God's king into his own city, there will be the gathering of king killers. 
Jesus entering Jerusalem on Sunday, by Friday he will be dead. Now, while some people, as they look at history, they will think that the death of Jesus was perhaps a failure of his worldly campaign, we will see, as we move into Matthew 21 onwards, that it is really the king's victory. For unlike the rest of the regicide in history, where king loses their power and they get killed, Jesus, as we will come into Matthew 21 onwards, he not only knows that he will die, but he chooses to die to display his absolute power. So as Jesus puts in his one-way ticket at the entrance of Jerusalem city, the balance of human eternal life and human eternal destruction hinges on what this king is about to do. And at the end, as we listen in, that the world is divided, the city is divided, you and I, who are sitting in and going along in the journey, we will also have to grapple with and have to take sides. Whose side will we be on, the king killers or the king? We will hear both from the king and we will hear from the king killers. Their view about power. And we will have to take our stand on where we take in terms of the power in our own lives. So I hope you have your Bible open by now. As we walk into the streets of Jerusalem, you hang in tight, carry on your wallets, make sure no one takes it away. We are going to dive right in to Matthew 21 verse 1. Let me read this for us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt, a young donkey. By her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Well, as we read this, how did Jesus know there's a donkey, there's a colt there in the village? Well, no details are given, and perhaps it doesn't matter. But what we do know is there is a key to getting the donkey. Jesus says, whoever stops you, tell them the Lord needs them. In the past, if you are following the gospel, people always call Jesus Lord. He never called himself Lord, but today, today he says the Lord needs them. Today he declares himself as the Lord. But why is Jesus asking for an animal? Is it tired? No, he has never asked things for himself. Well, before he dies, he should ask something. Perhaps not. Not that he's tired. But Jesus is claiming more than the donkey. He's claiming his rights as the promised king from God. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And here it goes. Centuries before Jesus appeared, God has spoken through the great prophet Zechariah in his book, chapter 9, verse 9 to 10, of the day where God's promised king will enter Jerusalem, righteous and victorious. He will enter Zion, not on a war horse as a king would, but on a humble donkey. This is what Zechariah wrote. Let me read this in this context. You have read it just now as well. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the fall of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken, 
He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. A day will come, said the prophet of old, where a king from God will arrive at Zion. Zion is the mountain where Jerusalem sits. He will arrive, and he will not arrive in chariots or horses of the kings of those days, flashy or convoy of followers behind him. This promised king comes to Jerusalem the city of the great king, in a very lowly manner, on a donkey. Yet, that lowly manner is more glorious than any king could ever enter the city because he comes with the great manifestation and display that any king could have. That when he comes this way, the victory of God itself arrives. So this king, he'll bring victory, righteousness, peace, to those who belong to him. His arrival marks the end for God's people who has been fighting all their life with weapons, physical weapons. Is This day, weapons goes off. Because this day, peace comes in. In fact, not just for the Jews. If you look at Zechariah, it's for all people from one end of the sea to the ends of the earth. So anyone who stands on the king's side when he arrives gets what God promises. So now we have Jesus as he enters riding a donkey, he declares this prophecy is fulfilled and this very week death will be defeated sin will be paid forth, the peace of God will be issued out to those who are God's people. So Jesus at his entrance makes this claim as the promised Messiah. Now if you are here Following Jesus and the donkey or the cult, we start entering the city. And as Jesus heads into Jerusalem, you get pushed around because there were large crowds also gathering in with excitement to see Jesus. There's this large crowd following because Jesus arrived at the most important festival in Jewish calendar. It's the annual Passover festival. It's most important because this is that day that they've celebrated for 1,300 years, where God comes and brings judgment on His enemies and He passes over judgment on God's people. Those who are declared God's people, God's judgment pass over them. And that festival has been celebrated for 1,300 years. This is no different except it is very different. Now, as we join in, we get squeezed through the crowd we start to see there are two groups of people arriving um, and responding to Jesus. The first group comes from downwards up the mountain from various cities and towns because there are people who come for this festival. There are people who are here to celebrate the, the annual Passover. And no doubt you have Galileans, you have people, um, Nazarenes, there are people who have seen Jesus spoke and have seen Jesus' miracles and have been healed following Jesus, and when they saw Jesus on the donkey, some went ahead, they spread their clothes on the road, some cut down branches, and they spread the palm leaves there, and then they shouted these words, verse 9, look at it, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heavens. This is, if you're a Roman, you may not catch it, but if you're a Jew, you're hearing that God is sending the man who will defeat enemies, right there. But meanwhile, you have 
another group of people who are from the city, they look out their window and say, what's this happening? They haven't known Jesus very well, but they start to ask who he is. And look at verse 10 and 11. As he enters, the whole city was stirred and people, some of them are not sure who he is and say, who is this man? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So on one hand, you have a group of people crying out that he is the king, the son of David. On another group, it says, who is this? Say, ah, he's a prophet. And mixed with that, Festive season, because crowds and truckloads of people are coming in. You no doubt have Roman soldiers. Because the last thing the Roman emperor wants is riots. So you will imagine there are Roman soldiers around, and they, they're listening. Okay, son of David, what does that mean? Prophet. They look at this guy, he doesn't look like a threat. No war horses, is on a donkey coming up. And that is the noise that we get to hear as Jesus enters on that Palm Sunday. I want you to hear that that it is actually a very noisy and a very rowdy and very um, distracting time. Because as you and I stand in the midst of the crowd, there will be all kinds of commentaries on who Jesus is. It's the same back then. It's the same for us now. Will we pause actually when we hear noises and great voices and commentaries? Will we pause and actually take a close look at Jesus, what he's going to say, and what he does, and then decide for ourselves, who is he? Because the crowd that's doing what they're doing now, they will change sight in five days' time. It's only those who have been watching him closely and hearing him carefully who will be able to stand. So will you and I, as we as we block out the white noises and the noise of crowds and commentaries about Jesus of excitement, that we'll look at Jesus carefully and make our stand of who he is to you and me. Because tides will change, but faith will not. So as the king comes, the world will one day reject him, even in our world, as they will do in five days' time. How will we respond Will we respond to him rightly? So like the crowds of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, we have commentaries of Jesus all around us, who he is. But none of us will be prepared, like those people in the crowd will be prepared for what is to come. None of them will be prepared for what is to come in five days' time. But none of us here will be prepared when the king returns as well. Unless... We are clear who he is and not be swayed by the white noises around us. Now we must move on because Jesus has already passed the city while I'm talking to you and he has headed towards the temple, which is the central point of the whole city of God. Not the king's palace, it's the temple because that's where God's name resides. And so look at verse 12. The king enters the temple courts. Uh, Jesus enters the temple court and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, as we listen to Jesus coming in and does this, it's actually a very loaded action. No one has ever done that. For those who understand the culture and history and the purpose of Jewish temple, this is a big deal. Let me just give you a picture of the temple and I'll tell you just what is there the many layers to understand what is happening. 
So right in the center, you have the holy place, or in it is the holies of holies, where the chief priest will go in once a year to sacrifice blood so that forgiveness can be achieved. And then out there later on, you have the priest courtyard. And then, there you go, you have a little red dot there. And the Israelite courtyard. And later you have the woman's courtyard. It's a bit unfair, but that is it is. And right outside, this is where the Gentiles' courtyard is. It's the biggest place, the noisiest place. Now, as Jesus enters the temple, he sees the court of the Gentiles have become a marketplace for people to earn quick money. Now, get a feel of how it works here. People who have traveled all over uh, the places to Jerusalem, it's really hard to bring your donkey and, and all kinds of sheep in because they probably will die before they reach there. So a lot of people from a distance, they will reach the neighboring cities, maybe Bethany and so on, to, to buy uh, animals for sacrifice. They will go and exchange their Roman currency for the temple currencies. Now, as this is going on, some business-minded people in Jerusalem says, Hey, why should the villagers get all the profits? Why don't we have a market in God's temple? So instead of them going out to Bethany, they'll come here and they'll buy from us. So they went to the chief priests and the religious authorities and said, Good idea. Let's set up a business in God's temple. It is spacious, but where should we put it? Should we put it... Um, can we go to uh, early on? Should we go to priest courtyard? No way. Like, how are we going to put animals there? The Israelites, no protest. Women's, no, we can't. The best place, Gentiles courtyard. It's airy, it's spacious, it's noisy. Who cares? And as their greed builds on them, they turn God's temple into a business district. So with the chief priests and religious authorities, the people have despised all the incoming Gentiles whom God calls, all those who travels to declare their repentance of sin and call this Israelite God their God. When Jesus enters here, he was enraged and he comes in to reclaim God's temple and to bring out judgment. Because this is what God said in Isaiah 56. This is what Isaiah 56 said years back, that all foreigners who love God, who loves God, God will love them back. They will bring these people to His holy mountain, give them joy in the house of prayer. These foreigners, when they come to the temple, is a place of joyfulness where all nations can repent and call God, God. This is what Isaiah said in his um, prophecy. God said this, These foreigners I'll bring to my holy mountain. I'll give them joy in my house of prayer. Because my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The God who gathered the exiles from Israel, of Israel back home, God will gather even more to himself. That outer court is actually an extension of God's grace to Gentiles. Gentiles like you and me, if we were in that time were willing to turn from idolatry to worship God. But today, or at that time, it has become a marketplace. So as the Gentiles, many of whom travel that long distance, arrive at the court, they will have to compete for space with the, the animals. They'll be stepping on animal pool. They'll be bargaining for currency because they didn't bring enough and then the exchange rate has gone up. Some will fall prey to businesses 
there'll be tears for those who cannot acquire what they need to come to God. But God sees everything. Jeremiah said this a few centuries back. This is what Jeremiah says. Chapter 7, 11. Has this house which bear my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And so Jesus, who had dismounted his donkey, entered the temple, he declared boldly, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So now Jesus, as he enters the temple, he now judgment on those authorized by the religious people. And while he's doing that, a group of people started to come to him. This is a group that was despised. The group that are not looked upon in the temple because they're handicapped and that means they are not as good. As this group come, Jesus looked at them and then he extends God's compassion and mercy on them. Those who are blind get to see, those who are lame start to walk. Well, that's how God's temple should have been. A place where God's mercy and grace is manifest for those who come. And what better occasion there and then in the temple for God to be glorified as the temples get reclaimed, as the sick and the lame gets to be healed. But that's not what happened. Look at verse 15 as you follow Jesus. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So the chief priests and teachers comes in. They're going to deal with Jesus' temple clearing in a while, the next day. But here, they want to first silence the chant that Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king. That's exactly what is happening there. No, they, they didn't manage to do it when Jesus first arrived because there were so many adults and they were like people pleasers. They don't want to be um, seen as opposing them. But now the children are just humming along what they hear at the, at the entrance and they come in and these little children like our Sunday school kids, they say, get them to shut up. Jesus, you heard what they're saying? Shut them up. You, you get called that, but you don't get called the son of David, here in my turf, in my temple. So the chief priest comes and asks Jesus to shut them up. Look at what happens, verse 16. Because if what are these children's uh, cry is like a burning coal on the feet, the bare feet of the Pharisees and chief priests, what Jesus is about to say is just going to burst the turban or the, or the hair the head dressing that they are going to be wearing on. Look at what Jesus says. Listen to verse 16. Do you hear what these children are saying? The chief priests and teachers of the law asked Jesus. Yes, replied Jesus. And have you never heard or never read? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 8. Now, this is the context of Psalm 8. And you can imagine why the faces of the chief priests turns flush red. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 8. He says this. This is the context of what the children are saying. And then Jesus replied, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a, wrong, a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and avengers. You know, as Jesus replies to the religious people with some aid, the problem comes that while the children are saying, you are the son of David, 
Jesus saying, and they are singing to God. So what David, uh, what Jesus is saying is that he's not just the Messiah, the son of David, or the king. He's God himself. And while the children are singing praises, they are silencing those people who are complaining about them, which is the chief priests. And they are the enemies of God. Now, dear friends, as we, as we are following Jesus a fair bit, and just looking at the atmosphere and hearing the voices, I want to ask this question. As you look at Jesus clearing the temple in the gentle courts, what does that mean to you and to me? Is he just doing it a historical thing? Or is he doing what we all need? Is he also the one that clears the temple so that you and me can come to God? Because if he doesn't clear the temple, you and I, would never reach God. Because we are Gentiles who have been despised and rejected. Is he the one who clears the temple for us to come to God or is he just another voice of a fanatic to be silenced? No, as we've been following Jesus a fair bit, it's it's a a very uh, amazing one day that's packed with stuff that we do know Jesus is taking this one-way ticket in Jerusalem but he knows what is coming, and he knows who he is. Well, that's enough for the day, as we'll be following Jesus just on Palm Sunday. He needs to take a rest, and we follow him out of Jerusalem to Bethany, in verse 17. He heads off, have a night's rest. Monday morning, early, he makes his journey back to Jerusalem. But on his way, he decides to give his disciples some private tuition. So look with me to verses 18 to 20. As they make their way back, Jesus was hungry. He saw a fig tree that doesn't have fruits. He condemned the tree. The tree withered. The disciples were amazed. Jesus teached them about faith and what is coming. As you read that small incident uh, right in front of you in your Bible, this is a passage that's often been misread or misunderstood. I've actually heard uh, atheists, when there was an argument, a uh, debate between Christian and atheists, and he brings this up and says this, how can anyone believe in a Jesus who is so self-centered? Just because the fig tree doesn't bear fruit, he abuses power and kills an innocent tree. If he can kill an innocent tree, who else will he kill? That was the actual argument heard from atheists pulling out from the Bible. He knows his word. But meanwhile, we also have Christians who read this and say, There you go. That is a promise for unlimited power. Grab this verse. You will have power to do anything and move mountains and dump in the sea. Except that we haven't seen any of that happen. Really. But both readings of the atheists or that view of unlimited power actually miss out the whole point of this parable or this this incident. Because the Jesus who had uh, fed 4,000 men and family and 5,000 men and family, he could easily look at the fig tree and say, hamburgers. And the fig tree would display a full range of hamburgers to eat. What is there to be angry about a fig tree? No, this passage is actually sandwiched between two events of Jesus going back to the temple. He has just gone there to the temple. He's going to go back to the temple right after that. Is this just a commercial break like the Kit Kat between two, two stories and that putting in as a commercial 
uh, account, or is it much more than that to explain what has been happening and what will happen? I think it's the later. So how do we make account uh, make of this account? I think he's really Jesus really explaining and teaching his disciples what will come and what will be needed for anyone who takes the side of the king. So you, this is not an easy passage. I'll encourage you to take a few minutes with me and drill right in to what Jesus is really saying in this sandwich event. Now this is what happens when Jesus sees the fig tree. It's not bare, it has leaves. A study by a commentator called O'Donnell, he, he paints us the cultural context. This is what he actually says it should look like. Okay, In the land of Israel, during the month of March, fig trees produce small edible green buds called pegum, or called takish in our modern Palestinian Arabs. That's what they call now. When our Lord saw from a distance the green leaves, he expected not to find figs. Because Mark, in his gospel, says it's not a season for figs. But he did expect to find something because of the leaves. There should be pegim or takish, you know, those early but edible fruits. But when he arrives, this particular tree was deceptive. With all its green foliage, there should have been fruits. But there were none. No, Don Carson, in his work, he described this picture of the fig tree as false advertisement. Its leaves are waving at you, but when you come to it, there's no fruit. And what comes next, the response of Jesus is not out of anger, but because his disciples are with him, he wants to tell them what is happening. So know what the disciples have been saying the previous day, they, they saw the hypocrisy of the chief priests. They were waving their leaves, calling the world, Come! Come to the temple! Come to God! Come and receive forgiveness! The world comes to the temple. They receive no forgiveness. They see a business district asking for their money. They found the marketplace instead of God. False advertisements. Jesus said, May you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. No, God's judgment to those who do not bear fruit is coming very quickly. Right in that very week is going to happen. God is declaring His judgment. Yesterday through Jesus, and right after this, again through Jesus. In fact, John 2.21 tells us, Jesus says, He will be a replacement of the temple. The temple will no longer be used when Jesus comes because Jesus is the temple. Now, if you can agree that this is how um, Jesus is uh, talking through the fig tree event, then what is coming next then is the disciples will need to respond to that issue. Okay, if Jesus says this, what is the implication? Look at verse 20, 21 with me. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. Now, how, does, how should the disciples respond? Now, up to this point, they haven't really understood that Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice or the replacement of the temple, but they will know within one week. Up to this time, they don't have to judge 
the chief priests, because Jesus does all the talking and they are the ones that are sitting behind. But after this week, they will have to bring judgment. They have not seen the destruction of the temple. In fact, later on you'll see they'll admire the temple, but they will. By AD 70, everything will be gone. They will recognize that everyone who needs to come to God can never climb up a mountain into a temple. They have to go by faith to Jesus. No, Philip Jensen and other um, trusted evangelical authors added this. The mountain you saw in verse 21, if you're looking at it and asking what it means, it could well be allegorical. But Jesus could very well, as he was walking with them on Mount Olives to Mount Zion, where the Jerusalem temple is, he's looking both at that mountain, holy mountain, or Mount Olives itself, and says, the day will come when both of this will be thrown out. Because it will be by faith that you come to God, not by climbing up a mountain. If you have faith, you will come to God through Jesus, not by climbing a physical mountain. And we need the same faith, brothers and sisters. If we want to come to God, you'll not be by a mountain or by means, physical means. It can only be by faith. And Jesus who says that the disciples, they will also have to respond after one week on that those who bear no fruits, they have to bring the judgment that this is what will happen to you, that you will wither. In the past, no one has to do that. Jesus does all that. But from then on, Jesus says, you will have to do that. By faith, you have to do what I'm doing. You have to say what I say. That's too much for him, for the disciples for now, and perhaps for us. So let's follow on Jesus, because Jesus has now quickly worked out his pace, and he's back in the temple again. Look at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. Now, the same chief priests, the previous day, now they call out the elders of the whole Jewish leaders, uh, people and to come to confront Jesus. Basically, if you are looking at verse 23, it is a religious showdown. Chief priests and all the religious leaders of the Jews facing one man and the 12 fishermen, tax collectors and other disciples. The powerful authorities coming to this self-declared king. They approach Jesus and they demand this. By what authority are you doing these things? They ask. And who gave you this authority? In a sense, it's a rhetorical question because you have chief priests, you have elders looking at Jesus and asking, what authority do you do the cleansing? If you say it's man, it says, which one of us gave you the authority? So it's a no-go. But if Jesus says, it's from God, it says, blasphemy, and that is the best place to kill Jesus. But Jesus flipped it around and asked them this question. Verse 24. I'll also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, this question comes in, and it's a tricky one for the chief priests and elders, because if they say it's from man, John's from man, they get stoned by the people. If they say John is from God, they are literally giving the power to Jesus, because John says that Jesus is the Messiah, and if Jesus is the Messiah and they say that it's true, 
he comes to the temple and he has the right to do everything that he has been doing. So they knew what was going on and in their hardened hearts they couldn't answer it and say, we have no idea. And hearing that response, Jesus not only refused to answer their question, he pronounced his judgment on them there and there with two parables and that will be the last two parables in Matthew 21. We have no time to look at both in detail, but I want to show you some of the bits and pieces of these two parables that Jesus has bring pronouncement and its implication to you and to me. Now the first parable is this. Just speaking of a vineyard owner, he had two sons. He asked them to work for him. The first son refused. It's a shame to the father. But later he repents and decides to do the work. The second son agreed with a big smile, but he had no intention at all to keep his words. So here we have, as the story view, Jesus says, is the repented son that will ultimately please the father. Jesus said this in verse 31. Which of these two did what the father wanted? They can't deny it. The first they answered. And immediately Jesus turned around. Look at the chief priests. Look at the elders. He pronounced judgment. The first son represents the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Those people that you discount as unworthy. They repented when they heard John. And they came back. And God received them. But you, chief priests, you're the hypocrite, the second son with a big smile, with a dagger behind your back, saying that, yes, you answer God, but you have no intention to keeping it. Even after seeing those sinners repent, you do not repent. So in that first parable, Jesus declared judgment on the chief priests, on the elders, on those who rejects God in their heart. And then the last parable, the second parable, he speaks about a vineyard owner, he planted his vineyard well, was rented out to tenants. However, when he comes to collect his fruits, those tenants treat the owner with contempt. They not only refuse to pay their due, they treated the servants of the owner terribly. They beat one, they killed the other, they stoned the third. And finally, when the owner sends his own son, this tenant said this. Now look at verse 38, 39. This tenant said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now dear friends, as we read that last portion, as Jesus speaks that words, he looks at the chief priests, he looks at the elders, those who have robbed God's temple, and he knew they are regicide. Because in a few days' time, these people will throw the God's, God's own son out of Jerusalem at Golgotha on the cross to kill him so that they can finally claim the temple as their own and silence God himself. As Jesus ends his parable, the last two verses of Matthew 21 tells us, after the chief priests heard this, they began their week-long plan to arrest Jesus. And indeed, they will murder Jesus by Friday. But that's never the end of the history or the story, isn't it? Now, Jesus was never that helpless victim of his own death. Rather, as we end to this passage, listen to these words of Jesus from 42 to 44. 
We've been following Jesus the whole morning. Now listen to these words of Jesus, 42 to 44. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls on will be crushed. No, dear friends, those who opposes God's king, those who claim to believe in God but bear no fruits of repentance, like the chief priests, Jesus put this out clear. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Jesus will give the kingdom to people who acknowledges him to be God's son whom God sent, Jesus will give the kingdom to those who repent of their sin truly like the first son in the parable and like the tax collectors and the prostitute. Jesus will give the kingdom to a people who will bear fruits to show that they have really repented and have God as their king. Now dear friends, we have come to the end of Matthew 21, but can I invite you to blot out the noise around the world. There are all kinds of noise telling us who Jesus is. But will we blot it out and just look at Jesus and what he says? Because we have to give our own answer. Who is Jesus to you and me? If our friends here are gone, if we are put in a prison, if we are put somewhere else where the atmosphere is different, who is Jesus to you and me? If our health is taken away, our wealth is taken away, if our children, our family are taken away, when everything is taken away, who is Jesus to you? Those who do not think carefully of this question would change their mind in five days' time. Those who do not think carefully of this answer will change their mind when trouble comes. Those who do not look at Jesus and what he says and look at the crowd will change their mind when the crowd changes theirs. Now, dear friends, as we examine our own lives, do we show that we are people who bear fruits, that Jesus is our King? Do we look at ourselves and realize that we are people who will repent of sin when we recognize any? We do not hold our sins treasures to us, but we give to God for forgiveness of our sins. Tune out the voices around. Look at our own hearts. Are we willing to stand on the King's side? When the regicide comes, when those in the world say, silent Christianity, silence Jesus, which side will we be on? If we have looked at Jesus carefully and we hear him carefully as he said about the fig trees, we will hold to our faith and will pronounce what only faith allows you to pronounce. And will allow you to have what only faith will give you to have. Jesus is all who comes to me. I come in the humble donkey to usher peace to you. Peace with God. Forgiveness of sin. On that final day, when judgment comes against all the enemies of God, that judgment passes over you. Because by faith, you were with me at Golgotha. Jesus the King, he offers forgiveness, compassion, peace to us. But if he is the cornerstone, 
He'll be the one that crushes us and those who are against Him. The day will come, we'll not be prepared to see how it looks like as the people in Jerusalem would be. But will faith hold us on that He is our King? Let us pray. Oh Father, we thank You. Thank You for this passage. Thank You for Jesus. Father, we know there's no neutral party on that Friday. And we know there will be no neutral parties when Jesus returns. Father, the question comes for us is who Jesus is to us when we tune out the noises of our world, when we examine our hearts. Oh, Father, help us to examine our hearts and to see that we do have faith in Jesus, that He is the one that will bring us peace with you. For His name and your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.